This week, I, I finally watched Encanto. Especially if you have younger kids, then there are high chances that you have heard a lot about Bruno since this thing came out. It's, it's the genius irony of it, right? The guy in the movie that nobody should talk about is the guy that everybody ends up talking about all the time because of the song that says about the fact that you shouldn't talk about the guy. And then, before you know it, you're washing the dishes and you're humming, you know? We don't talk about Bruno, no. And you don't even realize it. And nobody really remembers the song that was supposed to be the main song anyway. Like, who remembers that song? No one, right? We just talk about Bruno. My kids watched Encanto a while ago, so I had obviously already heard a lot about Bruno, uh, but I hadn't really watched the movie until this week. And it's essentially about a highly dysfunctional family that needs urgently to go to therapy, but who needs therapy when you have magic, right? Let's just do that. Uh, so the burden of the family trauma ends up on this one, one young woman or adolescent, I, I don't really get what age she's supposed to be, who is the only one that doesn't have magic powers except for the ability to get people to cut the crap and actually talk about what they're feeling. That's what she does. But be that as it may, my point was not really to talk about the story itself, but about how the story affected me. So I'm sitting there watching this Disney animated story and my emotions are all over the place. And it's not that the story is particularly good or the songs particularly moving or anything like that. It's, it's something much more fundamental than that. The thing is the story touches things that have particular relevance in my life. As I watched the movie and, and got emotionally, emotional from it, I was deeply aware that it moved me because I am a parent. It moved me because I am a father. I am sitting there watching this with my kids, and the story is talking about family conflict and reconciliation and about kids that carry the emotional scars of how they were treated by their families. And as I watched it, I kept on thinking on all the people on the real world that are scarred by this kind of thing. And I kept thinking about my role as a parent, about the impact of what I do in the life of my kids. Now, I'm not really going to talk about parenting today either. <laughs> and when we open our Bibles in a few seconds, you may wonder why I spent all this time talking about Encanto and what that has to do with the story that we will read. And I will get back to that. But if you can keep these three things in mind while we open our Bibles, you, you might even start seeing where I'm, I'm going with this. One is the power of storytelling. Another thing is dysfunctionality in the story. And the third thing is the story and the listener, the relationship between the story and the listener. Okay, so the power of storytelling, dysfunctionality in the story, and the relationship between the story and the listener. So let us stand together as I open the gospel according to St. Luke, and I'm going to read from chapter 16 from verses 1 to 15. And this is how St. Luke tells us the story. Jesus told his disciples, 
There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not as strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quietly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. That's the story according to St. Luke. You may sit down. There's at least one thing in common between watching Encanto and reading this parable for me. And it's that both stories got me cringing and thinking, ooh, this is messed up. I'm not sure what to think of this. Right? This has to do with that element that I have here called the dysfunctionality. Right? This perception of friction, of things that seem to be out of place or are incoherent. There's something there that doesn't seem to be functioning properly. And there's so much of that in this parable that Jesus tells. And in the way that he frames it. And in the way that Luke frames it as he writes the gospel. I mean, what do we do with this? This guy is accused of wasting or mismanagement of his master's properties. And then he goes around simply lowering people's debts. How is that even supposed to work? And then the master goes ahead and actually commends him for this. And then to get us more confused, Jesus seems to also commend what this manager, whom he himself had just called as honest, and commend him. Is Jesus commending dishonesty, corruption? Then Jesus goes ahead to speak of being trustworthy with worldly wealth, but also saying that we can't serve both God and money. And it all seems very confusing and disorienting. Now, different commentators and interpreters have suggested different ways of either explaining this or explaining it away. 
these problems in the story, right? And I really do think that there are merits to some of these, uh, of these explanations, though not all of them, uh, to some of these attempts. But even though I will draw from some of these, I am not really that interested today in solving these dysfunctionalities. But rather what I want to do is to call us to pay attention to the dysfunctionality itself, to the thing that doesn't quite work. And to pay attention to that element in the wider context of Jesus' practice of telling parables. The thing is, this is not the first of Jesus' parables that in a way does not make sense. Especially if by making sense we mean adhering to societal and economical rules and expectations. The economy of the parables, in other words, is all messed up and upended in several of the parables. Let me just give you a quick review of a few parables that Jesus told us on just the two chapters leading up to this one. He tells a parable of a, of a master, of a king, who makes a great banquet to celebrate, and then he invites all the people. The people don't come. He invites them again. They don't show up. So he, how he solves this is that he sends his servants out, gathering whoever they find on the streets, all the beggars, the lepers, everybody. Bring them so they fill the table. How does that make any sense? In a society that is built on reciprocity, right? That is built on hospitality and reciprocity. What economical sense does it make to invite the beggar? In a way, the excuse is that the people who don't come make more economical sense. I just bought two new oxen. I need to train them so I can't go to your, to your wedding, to your, to your celebration. I'm busy with my business. I can't go. Those things make sense. Calling all the people that live in the streets to eat up your food, that does not make sense. Well, take the parable of the lost sheep. We're so used to it that we don't often think about it, right? This shepherd is out in the wild with a hundred sheep. He realizes one goes missing. He leaves the 99 out there to go looking for one. Economically, this makes no sense. The reason the shepherd is out there with the sheep in the field is that it's dangerous. They can be attacked. They, more of them can get lost. It just goes off looking for this one lost sheep. Do you risk 99% of your assets to try to save one? It doesn't make sense. Well, take the parable of the lost coin. This woman has 10 coins. She loses one. She turns her, her house upside down until she finds the one coin. What does she do? She throws a party. She invites everybody over. Let's celebrate. That party is going to cost her three coins, I guess, right? So what is this? And then I have the parable of the lost son, which you heard about last week, for those of us who are here, in which this one son, who is the youngest, asks for his inheritance, which is absurd, which is obscene in the culture. First of all, he's not an entitled to all of the inheritance. He's just entitled to a small part of it because he's the youngest son. 
And also, inheritance is something you get when your father dies. But he goes on, he asks for it, he gets it, he goes away, he wastes it all. And then when he comes to his senses and he comes back, he is received with mercy. He is received with grace. And not only that, he gets a ring again. That means he is again part of the family and entitled to the family property. He gets the fat calf that is only killed for big celebrations of the family. The arguments of the older brother make much more sense, right? I've been here all the time. I'm working. Why can't I get my share of what what we're doing? If all these parables speak of not particularly smart moves from an economical perspective, and some of them are actually shady from a legal perspective. Like this younger son just getting his inheritance before, it doesn't make sense. So while they do that, they're like weird in that sense. What they all also do is that they throw in a way caution to the wind for the sake of grace. They throw caution to the wind for the sake of grace. They share this absurd willingness to drop it all to go towards what was lost, to embrace the wayward, the outcast, to take the loss for the sake of the lost. Whether they are lost by their own doing or by the mere weight of the systems that push them out. If we did a bit more Research or went a bit more into, digged a bit more into this parable of the so-called shrewd manager. There's so much we don't know. We don't know if this man was a free manager or a slave. Changes the picture a bit, right? We don't know. Both possibilities are fine within the historical context. We don't know if his master was honest or corrupt. Anybody ask that question? We don't know. And all the evidence points towards Jesus' listeners assuming that a wealthy landowner was corrupt by definition. Because if they had had followed the law of Moses, the law of Moses was built to avoid this kind of thing. We don't know if the debts that the manager forgave were abusive or if they were proper debts. We don't know if what he shaved off of their debt wasn't the wild, crazy interests that the landlord had put on it. We don't know. What we do know is that this manager risked everything by betting on the grace and mercy of those whose debts he forgave, hoping that they would take him in when he needed it, but also ultimately on the grace and mercy of his master. He risked getting a much more severe punishment if he was a slave, perhaps even death. But he decided to bet everything by speaking mercy and grace to the debtors and hoping that he would receive some as well. And interestingly enough, we, we don't hear the end of the story. 
We don't know what happens to him. We know the master commends his move and says, oh, you were smart. He doesn't say that what he did was good either. He says it was smart, right? But that's where it stops. But in the context of all these other parables, I wonder if this story isn't meant to be left unsolved. To leave us uncomfortable. To make us wiggle a bit in our seats and not find an easy solution. To keep challenged. And this leads me to the other thing that I mentioned when I talked about the Encanto movie, which is the question of how the story affects those who are listening. And it seems very relevant that Luke actually singles out a group of people listening and lets us know why this story hits home for them. The Pharisees who loved money, he says, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Isn't it interesting that the people most bothered by this parable are the ones who would be most bothered by the dysfunctionality in the story? The issue, it seems, is not only that they had money, but that they loved it. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In all of these parables that Jesus has been telling, the economy of money, the economy of wealth, gives way for the economy of grace. God is repeatedly and unashamedly told into the story as a God of grace and mercy, as the God who sees the lost, the outcast, the oppressed, the repentant, the sinner, and goes out of his way to reach them, to meet them. Now, all of this doesn't mean that these stories are condoning corruption and dishonesty. To begin with, to argue that, we would have to make ourselves quite obscenely blind <laughs> to the levels of corruption and dishonesty that have always been built into our economical systems to make some rich and others poor. It's just not as simple as that. And we know that. And we know that. My point is that these stories challenge what we take for granted. They challenge the whole system. And they challenge it for the sake of grace and mercy. And through this, the power of storytelling, through these apparent dysfunctionalities that suddenly expose the cracks in society and the cracks in ourselves, through the way in which these stories hit home in our own hypocrisies and our own temptations, these parables invite us to ask the hard questions. And we can work our way out of it like the Pharisees, right? We can sneer and say, ah, look at Jesus condoning corruption. Defending this guy who should be in prison. He deserves it, right? Defending the robber. We can make our way out of it, or we can ask 
the hard questions. How does the story of grace, how does the story of the gospel, how does the story of a God who comes out of his way to meet the broken, right? The outcast and us. How does it affect how we deal with the world around us? And yes, I actually think this is about money. Not only, but also. How does it affect how we deal with the people and with wealth? How does it affect how we deal with the systems that oppress the poor? That get people locked up in debt and poverty and what may be? How does this shape our priorities? Today is Labor Day. As we celebrate throughout Norway our rights, and we live in one of the countries that has the best workers' rights in the world. The stuff we buy doesn't come from those countries. Right? Stuff we dress doesn't come from Norway. And it's not easy to navigate all of this. There's no simple solution. We can point fingers at each other or we can ask the hard questions. How does the way we use our wealth, whether it's just a bit or it's a whole lot, thank God I know don't know what your bank account looks like. But you know whether it's a bit or a lot. What does the way we work in and move in this world, how is it affected by the story of grace and how it touches us? And Jesus does that, right? tells us these stories of a shepherd, of a lost coin, of this shrewd manager who's trying to work a way around the system. And suddenly, we're sitting there, we're standing there hearing the story and realizing this, is, this has to do with us. It's like me listening and watching that movie and thinking, this has to do with me. And I put my kids to sleep and I'm thinking, what I do with these kids today affects how they will see themselves in their whole lives. The way in which I love them and show them mercy and show them grace or not will affect their mental, spiritual, and emotional health. As we hear these parables, do we get that? As we get out from the storytelling, how does the things we do, the choices we make, affect the dysfunctionalities of this world and our part in it?
And are we willing to be part of a different kind of upending of dysfunctionality, which is when grace and the gospel breaks in and has the courage of putting grace first, mercy first, lives first. What that will mean, that's for us to figure out. Because it's messy. It's complicated. But we all know it's needed. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you. And may he bring you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the world and serve the Lord and serve each other joyfully. Amen.